You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2013. Today's episode is titled, Making a Name for Yourself. What if you were part of an organization that had great leadership, stellar management, equal yoking, unity, clear vision, abundant resources, sound technology, excellent teamwork, strong communications, and a clear definition of success? This would indeed be a world-class organization. If any organization was to achieve lasting success, it would be this one, right? If you think so, you would be wrong. This is a description of the Tower of Babel project recorded in Genesis 11, 1-9. To build world-class organizations that will endure, one must build what God has authorized to be built. Building an organization for any other reason does not bring glory to God, because it is not aligned with His will. Wisdom to win at work begins with the right motive, glorifying God by aligning with the will and ways of God. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Making a Name for Yourself. Well, it's uh, good to be with you guys this morning. Um, It's a pleasure and a delight. Pray that we have a fruitful conversation. In fact, let's just pray for a minute here. Father, we uh, thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege of opening your word and for considering the truth that's in your word. Father, give us grace to hear how we're to walk this out. Give us grace and strength and the courage to endure and persevere, to be patient as we learn. And Father, just speak to us at levels that we've never heard before and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to talk to you about wisdom to win at work. Would it be a good topic for you guys this morning? You want to win at work? Now, when I say win at work, um, most of you probably immediately think about making a bunch of money. And that is a way of winning. But I would suggest that's not the way of winning. Because in the end, when you die, where's your money going to go? I know there's a story about a lady whose husband uh, was very wealthy, and she told him, or he told her, now, honey, when I die, I want you to put all my money in my casket. And she said, okay, I will. So the day came, the man died, and, and they're having the funeral. And the casket is open, and they get through with the funeral, and they're about ready to close the casket, and, and the lady says, wait just a minute. And she walks up there, and she puts something in the casket. And then they close the casket. Well, one of her friends said to her, well, what was that? And she said, it was a check. A check, a check for what? Well, a check for all the money he has. And then she explained that, that she had promised to put all his money in this casket with him. So that's a, that's a funny story, but it's a picture of how many of us live. We live as if that money is going to go with us. And we know deep down it's not. In fact, Scripture says that. Scripture says you brought nothing into the world, and you will take nothing out. So we know money can't be the real measuring stick of winning in life. It's got to be something else. And you also know that from looking at Jesus' life. Would you say Jesus was the most successful man that ever lived? If you know Jesus as your Savior, you would probably agree. He is the most successful person that's ever lived. Well, what was success to him? At the end of his life, he was jobless, homeless, rejected by his followers, rejected by the religious leaders, 
rejected by the political leaders, living off the charity of women, and even had an embezzler amongst his followers. Now, we would not look at any of that and say, well, that's something to be admired, nor would we say that's very successful. And yet he was the most successful man, I would say, in history. And how did he define success? Well, in John 17, 4, he said, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You see, success was doing what he had been assigned to do, his work assignment. Well, everyone here has a work assignment from the Father. So success to us, if we define it as Jesus did, is not about the money. It's about the obedience to do that assignment. And some of you may have heard me say this before, but I think the money thing is just a, a, a tool of the enemy to deceive us. The real answer to the question, how much money do you need, is how much do you need to do what you're called to do? Amen. That's what you need. And guess what? You have a father that wants to give that to you if you just line up and obey him. So as we think about wisdom that wins at work, we're thinking about God's definition of winning. We're talking about God's work that you're assigned to do. We're talking about God's wisdom to do the work that you're assigned to do. So what I want to do is read you a text today and just share a few comments about this text relative to wisdom to win at work. Now this is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let me just give you a little background up to this point in Genesis. Remember Genesis 1, we have creation. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, we have the fall of man. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that God made man to be his agents to rule his creation. That's why we're here, to be rulers. And we do that by multiplying, by expanding, growing over the face of the earth, and by bringing dominion, by mastering God's universe. This is the biblical basis for technological advances right here. This is why we do technology. It's because it's a way of mastering God's universe. The fall of man came in Genesis 3. Man lost his ability to live in the garden, which was the ideal place to fulfill the creation mandate. And now we have to do the creation mandate outside the garden. And we're also told in Genesis 3 that we need a redeemer to really do that creation mandate well. And then we have the next phase of history up to the flood is the phase where, phase where God is teaching man a lesson. And the lesson is, man left to himself will just lead himself into chaos. Man left to himself will not seek God. And that's what you have with the flood. You have Genesis 6, where it records that the whole world had just gone totally chaotic with sin and rebellion against God. And oh God now God judges that, sends the flood, wipes everybody out. We have the, the first reboot. You thought reboot had to do with computers. No, God hit a reboot here. He hit the reboot button, and we have a reset. We start all over now with a new set of people. Now we have eight people, and we're going to start afresh. And all of these are people supposedly that follow the Lord. And then that group of people get a second opportunity to show the same lesson, which is man left to himself will not seek the Lord, will not follow God. It's a very important lesson we have to get. We don't choose God. He chooses us. We respond to him. You see, faith is not something that comes from me. 
Nor does it come from you. It comes from the work of the Spirit in you. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We all know that text. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Very, very well-known text. Well, notice there, the faith is not of you. So God has to empower us to be able to have faith, to accept him, and to walk with him. And so that's the big lesson that he's showing us here in the early chapters of Genesis, is that man will not choose God. Man is rebellion against God. And so now in this reboot after the flood, we have a series of genealogies given of basically Noah's sons. And in the midst of those genealogies, we have a story. And that story is meant to show us something about the nature of man, our own nature, without Christ. It's meant to show us the importance of why we need Christ in our life. So it's also meant to show us the default state that we're all in. This is the story of Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It's a short text, so I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to come back through and make a few comments about this text. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So this is a very interesting story. It's a group of Noah's descendants. These are the people that lived after the reboot. And they have come up with a plan. A plan of their own thinking. This was not of the Lord's origin. So what they did is they found a plain in Shinar. Now we understand Shinar to be the area, the plain between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in Iraq. And if you're familiar with that area, some of you may have served over in that area, it's very flat, which is a good place. If you're going to build a tower, you want a flat foundation. Those of you in the construction business know you wouldn't build a tower off a slope foundation very well. It would be very difficult. It would be very hard. The logical way to do it is off a very level plane. Well, that's what they found. So here this group comes together. There is one language and a common speech. This tells us that all languages of the earth ultimately come from one language. And those that study language, I think that's called philology, you know, have recognized the patterns that are common in the various languages of the world and are tracing them back. Now, I don't know what the original language was. I haven't seen anybody that knows. But there was one language and a common speech, so this means there weren't a bunch of dialects. Some of you may may have tried to understand people that speak English from different parts of the world, like people in Singapore speak English. Um, But 
it's probably closer to Singlish rather than English. It's hard to understand them. I listen very hard to the Singaporean people. I know they're speaking English, but it's really difficult for me to understand what they're saying. Well, that's, the, that's their dialect. It's a combination of Chinese and British English, and to Americans it sounds very strange. So these people, though, had one language and a common speech. They didn't have a bunch of dialects. They understood each other very well. Now, they're moving eastward, apparently from the region of Ariat, which is believed to be where the Ark settled, and that's in Turkey. So this people now moved into the area of Iraq. And so they come up with this plan. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, at that time, as I understand it, the way they made bricks is they took clay, it was moist clay, and they would cut it up into very even shapes, and they would let it dry in the sun. And that made a brick of a certain quality. And when they wanted to make a brick of a superior quality, even harder, they would actually fire the brick. It would heat it up. And so, clearly, this group of people is going to use the best technology they have, which is to fire the bricks, to produce these building materials, they're going to be very good. Which gives you a clue here. These people are using the best technology that is available at the time to build what they want to build. Now, one of the questions you may ask yourself here is, well, how do they know to do this? Where did they get this understanding of how to build anything? You ever thought about that? You guys are they're builders. You ever thought, what is the genesis of construction? Well, obviously, construction was learned by the followers of Adam and Eve after the fall, because now they're living in an environment that's not as hospitable as a garden. If you can live in a garden with it without any clothes, do you need a building? No, you don't need a building. But if now that you're outside the garden, well, things are different, because now we don't have the protection of the garden, probably needed shelters. Now, we don't have any real clear evidence of that, but we know after the flood that's most likely true because at that point there appears to be a climate change. That's when you see the seasons coming in more robustly. You see more extreme temperature conditions. Now you definitely need, uh, you need buildings and shelters to protect yourself. So at some point, construction was developed. It very well could be that we learned a lot of the construction te technology from Noah. Now you're saying to yourself, Noah was a farmer. And that's true. Noah was a farmer. But God put him on a temporary assignment for 100 years to build a boat. Now can you imagine that conversation with you know, God and Noah talking? Where God says to Noah, Noah, I know you're a farmer, but I want to take you for the next 100 years and you're going to build a boat. And he said, what's a boat? Well, don't worry about it, Noah. I'll explain it to you. And he says, well, how do you build? I don't know, what, I don't know how to build anything. Don't worry, I'll explain to you how to build. And... What's this thing about rain? You see, at that point, they had not had any rain. So he didn't know anything about rain. So God's having to explain everything. It's kind of like Vince Lombardi saying, gentlemen, this is a football. That's where he started. Let's get down to the basics. And so a lot of the, the technology for construction came undoubtedly from God showing Noah how to build the ark. So that's what's going on here is these guys now are building off the technology they've learned from their ancestor Noah who, and whose, uh, whose heirs obviously developed and enhanced this technology. So they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, why would they use tar? Well, that's probably the waterproofing that Noah learned from building the ark. If you're going to build an ark, it's going to float in the water, you better be waterproof. And God knew that, so God obviously showed Noah how to do that, and now that's been passed on to these people. So they're ready to build this thing. 
They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, we don't really know exactly what that looked like, but we know it was a, it was a place where uh, they obviously wanted to build something that was dramatic, something that would be notable, something that would make a name for themselves. In fact, they say this. They said, come, let's make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the whole earth. Now, in their heart, there's something going on there. And that is a heart of rebellion. And God is allowing this to be manifested. Because, see, these people are under the creation mandate. The creation mandate is to expand over the face of the earth and to bring dominion, the rule and reign of God, over the face of the earth. And so they want to stop. Well, that's disobedience to what God has called them to do. They want to stop and build a monument to themselves. Now, they don't have permission to do that. You know, it's important for us to recognize that we need to be functioning out of permission from God, out of a directive from God. We don't have the right to self-define. Now, that's hard for us because we're all very independent people, and we like to try to figure things out ourselves and do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. But that's not the mandate that we're under. We're under the mandate as creatures of the living God who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ to obey his will and his ways, not to do our will in our ways. But these people are showing us that in our base nature, apart from Christ, we will do what they did. And that is, we will do our will according to our ways. So they concocted this plan, and they're going to build this monument to themselves to make a name for themselves so that they will be famous. They will be well-known. They will be admired. They'll be respected. That's their thought process here. Now, we have to recognize that what's in them is in us. What's in them is in us. Because we are human beings just like they are, apart from Christ, we will do what they do and what they did. So my, my thesis is the default condition of the human race is to build towers of Babel. Now you say, what does that look like? Well, it can look a lot of, a lot, a lot of ways. Anytime you're doing anything to accomplish your agenda, your purpose, you're building a tower of Babel. Recently, I was uh, was told about a situation where someone wanted to donate a very ornate desk to a nonprofit, and they were thrilled at doing it. And they made the invitation, extended the invitation. The nonprofit said, "Well, that fits. You know, we can use that very ornate desk. It fits our decor here." And so, then a few days later, the nonprofit gets a message that says, "Oh, but we want a plaque on there." Noting that we've made this donation. And they specified the language they wanted on the plaque. And the nonprofit's probably going to do it, but what it, what it illustrated to me, the first thing I thought of when I heard that, well, there's a Tower of Babel being built. Somebody doing something to honor themselves, to make a name for themselves, to be known. So people will look at that and say, wow, what an incredible gift that is. Some of you may know the, the name Dwight L. Moody. You heard the name Dwight L. Moody? Very famous evangelist of the 19th century. Did some incredible evangelistic work. He established Moody Bible Institute. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was established, but by the early part of the 20th century, Moody Bible Institute was nearly bankrupt. Because Dwight L. Moody was not a businessman. 
Dwight L. Moody was a great orator, a great speaker, a great evangelist. He was not a business guy. And so running an organization, which is what business people do, that he didn't have the skills to do it. And so he had a good friend named Henry Parsons Crowell. Now, some of you may know Henry Parsons Crowell because he was the founder of Quaker Oats. And some of you may know the battle he fought to found that organization, the struggle he had, and, and some of the trials he had. But through all of that, God had developed in him an incredible character base. So when uh, the call went out to Henry Parsons Crowell by Dwight L. Moody, help, that was the call. Well, Henry Parsons Crowell went to Chicago and sat down with Dwight L. Moody and looked at the situation and agreed for no money at all to come in and run Moody Bible Institute. Well, under his care, he turned that organization around, and it exists today because of Henry Parsons Crowell and his willingness to serve and to, and to bring his business skills to bear under the power of the Holy Spirit and turn that organization around. Henry Parsons Crowell had one condition. The condition is there would be no monument to him. There would be no plaque, no building named after him. That was his condition. Now, Moody Bible Institute honored that as long as he was alive. Once he passed, they no longer honored that, which is a sad thing. Because Henry Parsons Crowell really understood, you know, that his inclination was to build a Tower of Babel. And he said, I do not want to build a Tower of Babel. That is not God-honoring. If God has assigned me to, to this place to help this organization move forward, that's my assignment. I will do it faithfully. And my reward will come not from a plaque or a building, not from money. It will come because when I hear the well done from the Father. That was his definition of success. So this story illustrates for us how we have a tendency, just like they do, to build these towers of Babel. Your tower of Babel may be your bank account. It may be your business. It may be a building you do. It may be some development you do. It, it may be a book you write. It, it, whatever it is that you are trying to make a name for yourself, it's just a tower of Babel. Now let's take a look and see how God responds to the towers of Babel, where people are trying to make names for themselves. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Now keep in mind, when you hear language like that, the Lord came down, uh, that's what theologians call anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic means it's, it's speaking as if God were a man, which God clearly is not a man. God is a spirit being. So to help us, who are finite material beings, understand an infinite spiritual being, God will speak in what's called accommodating language, and that is anthropomorphic language. He accommodates our condition by speaking as if he were one of us. So is that, that clear? You know, that, hopefully you've heard that before from other teachers. But that you've got to understand that or you won't, this won't make sense to you. Be God coming down, how does God come down? Well, he's speaking anthropomorphically here. So then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Now, the Lord didn't have to come down to see it. The Lord is omnipresent, omniscient, he's all-knowing. He didn't gain any information here. This, again, is that anthropomorphic language. The Lord said, If, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. You know, God has put into his universe the ability for us to plan, for us to be strategic, for us to come together and be teams and work in a unified way to accomplish things, to bring dominion upon his planet. Those are rules that God has put in his universe. So you can see that what they've done is they've taken God's rules and they've misapplied them. There's nothing wrong with God's rules and God's ways. But when you misuse God's ways, then you wind up building a Tower of Babel. And so God will respond to that. And he recognized the seminal thing that's enabling this this organization to function is their common language. They can communicate well together. When I first started business back in the early 70s, um, I remember one of the things I began hearing, not only in the company I was in, but other companies that I was associated with, was there's no communication. Y'all ever heard that? Yeah, very common, very common problem. There's no communication, meaning that the people leading the company and then those below them, there's a disconnect. That we, you know, we didn't know what was going on up there and they weren't, we, if they were communicating with us, we weren't getting it. So the net effect was we felt like there was no communication. Well, that wasn't, that was true pretty much of most organizations that I knew of at that time was communication problems. And that always created resentment. It always created, you know, bad attitudes. It always created some level of, of disrespect. Those kinds of things. Well, that's what happens when there's poor communication in an organization. Have you seen an organization that communicates really, really well? Has anybody ever seen that? Yeah, that's what I thought. None of you are shaking your head. Because it's really a challenge. It's a problem. Well, apparently this organization was really good at communicating. And so God recognized very quickly, and again, we're talking anthropomorphically here. He didn't learn anything. He knew all along. He knew that the Achilles heel here was communication. So this is simple. We'll just confuse the communication. And once that's done, they won't be able to work together. Teamwork's gone. They won't be able to execute their strategic plan. They won't be able to issue command and control orders. Nothing will happen well. And so it totally stops the project simply by, by confusing the communication. And some of you may say, well, gee, I, you know, that happens in my home. Yep, it does. It happens in my home. It happens in our churches. Yes, it happens in our churches. It happens in our in our government. Yes, it happens there in our school. It happens all over. Because poor communications is absolutely the the predicate to poor organizations. You show me a poor organization, invariably you're going to find poor communications. So that this is what God did. He, he confused the communications. Now we have the genesis of all the languages of the world here coming right out of this particular situation here. And it's called Babel. Babel means confusion. That's literally what it means. Now the whole theme of Babel and Babylon now will go through the rest of Scripture. This is the genesis now of a theme of Scripture that goes all the way into the book of Revelation, the final days. It's the whole theory of confusion. It's the, it's the point of people in living in rebellion against God. They will be confused. So God scattered them over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, you know, the creation mandate was all about what? 
It's about people scattering over the face of the earth. He said, multiply and spread all over the earth. So when they stopped to do their illicit project, God did not bless that. Although, interestingly, we don't know how long they built. You thought about that? We don't know that. What if they built for several hundred years? It might look like they were having a lot of success. You see, just because it looks like something is successful doesn't mean it really will be successful in the end. And all you've got to do is look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 makes it very clear that financial success, well-being, good health are not definitely signs of blessing. Now, most of us are readily, you know, if, if we say, well, gee, I just made a bunch of money, we think we've been blessed. Not necessarily. Money can be one of two things. Either it is provision for you to do God's will according to God's ways. Or if you don't use that money to do God's will according to God's ways, it becomes a tool of judgment. And the way it will bring judgment on you is it will embolden you to think you're hot stuff. That you, look, look at how good I am, look at how skilled I am, look at how capable I am, look how much money I can make. And then you are in pride and arrogance against God. And according to Psalm 73, you're on the slippery slope of judgment. It's just a matter of when that judgment's going to be executed. So we don't know how long they went on before this judgment was executed. So we got to get real clear. You know, it's, money is not success. Money is a tool to do the will of God. You know, having a, a, a building an organization that looks successful, not necessarily success. Having good health is not necessarily success. What is success is alignment with the will and ways of God. That's the ultimate definition of success. So God scattered them over the face of the earth. So now he said, look, you don't want to obey the creation mandate. I'm going to force it on you. And so now he moves them all over the face of the earth. And then he says this. This is why it is called Babel. Babel is all about confusion because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there he scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So this is an, an interesting story about wisdom to win at work. You see, the critical thing about what happened here was their heart. Their heart was about their will and their ways, their motive. It was not about God's will and God's ways. So if you want wisdom to win at work, you've got to start looking right here in the core of your being. Let me just give you, I think, some more examples of this. Uh, Absalom, remember Absalom? King Absalom, or he wasn't king, he tried to be king. He was David's son. You know, he was all about his agenda. In fact, he tried to steal the kingdom from his father. You remember that story? How he st stood outside the city gates and the people would come in and he would, he would greet them. And, you know, the, there were no kings or officers there to help them. So he would say, I'm sorry there are no king's officers here to help you. If I were king, I would be here to help you and take care of whatever is wrong in your life. And so he did that for a period of time, and he won the hearts of the people. And when David realized what had happened, he realized he had to flee because his son Absalom had won the people to himself. Well, Absalom was all about himself. 
All about his agenda, his will, his ways. And so when you live that way, you're building a Tower of Babel. So look what it says of Absalom in 2 Samuel verses 18, 18. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. You see, that's, again, what's in Absalom is in us. When we don't build spiritual sons, we will build monuments to ourselves. And that's what happens in most organizations today. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a company or a nonprofit, a church, it doesn't matter. I, I was in a company this week, just a few days ago, and two owners, these guys are in the construction business. They've been in business for 40 years. They have no spiritual sons. Virtually everybody in the company is over 60 years old, and now these guys want to retire. They have no plan. They have no sons. They have built this nice building. It's a very attractive building, and they've got a level of reputation out there, but they have no sons. Basically, unless they, the God grants them the grace to find some sons pretty quickly and begin to train these sons, then they're going to wind up just shutting the business down. You see, they built a monument to themselves. When you don't build sons, you build monuments. Another example of how this works is if you have the wrong view of money. We're talking about the heart here. If your heart is not about building sons, then you're going to build a Tower of Babel. If your heart is wrong about money, you're going to build a Tower of Babel. So listen to this text. This is out of James 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Now that's about the heart, isn't it? So what is it? What are the wrong motives? When you are, you're asking God for money and he doesn't give it to you, because you have wrong motives, what's going on there? He says this, The wrong motive is that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, now that's, you've got to let that sink in for a minute, because most of us, we think about our money, we make a bunch of money, we want to go build a second home, or we want to buy a bunch of toys, or maybe maybe we'll give to charity and get a plaque on our you know, for that gift somewhere, or be recognized in the the Meyerson's program. You ever been to the Meyerson Symphony? Great music down there. The program's full of tributes to the people that have given money. You know, people building Towers of Babel. Now, please understand, I'm all in favor of supporting good causes. What I'm saying here is, we always look at the heart. If you're giving to get your name printed someplace so somebody can say, look how great you are, you built the Tower of Babel. Your motive is wrong. If you spend your money on your pleasures, your care, your comfort, your convenience, and you don't have permission to spend it that way, then your motive is wrong. You know the only reason to buy a toy is because God has directed you to do that? The only reason to build a home is because God has directed you to do it? 
The only reason to take a vacation is because God's directed you to do it. You see, he has a will for everything. And unless we're looking for that will, then we will default to our will and we'll wind up building all these towers of Babel. It's all about me. Look how great I am. And we've all done it. We've absolutely all done it. The challenge is, is can we repent? Can we recognize the error of our sin? Well, maybe this will help you. Because if we read on in James, God gets very direct. You know, most of us think God's very nice and polite and kind, but there are times he's flat direct. Well, look what he says. So if we spend our money on our pleasures, he says, this is what you are. You adulterous people. He's talking about spiritual adultery here. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? It means you're an enemy of God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, how many of you hire people? Most of you hire people? I help my clients hire people. Now, how many of you have on your your qualification sheet where you're qualifying candidates a question that says something like this? Is this person spending his money on his own pleasures? You got a question like that? Or you can say the question another way. Is this person an enemy of God? Now, would you hire somebody that's an enemy of God? Would you knowingly do that? Now, see, that's a a stretch for us because we are not used to thinking about God in the workplace. Or maybe uh, we think about God in the workplace as, well, we pass out tracts. Or we, uh, we share the gospel with people. Or we want to be ethical. No, God's after the heart. If you want wisdom to win at work, you've got to know God is after your heart. He wants to, your heart right with him. And that means his will done his ways. That means your heart's right, your mind's right, and then your, your words and your actions become right. Let me say it another way. What drives your doing is your being. What drives your doing is your being. Your being, that is your relationship with Christ, your heart attitude, your worldview, your understanding about God's will and His ways, that drives how you act, the choices that you make, the decisions, everything about your life. God is after transforming us inside so we can live outside in alignment with His will and His ways. This is what the story of the Tower of Babel is showing us. It's a picture early in the book of Genesis of the state of man left to himself. We will default to building these towers of Babel unless we learn how to walk in the will and ways of God. And that comes through the transformation power of Jesus Christ. You know, more and more as I've studied, I'm getting, probably some people will say I'm fanatical, but I'm getting to the place where The only people I want to hire are people that are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Those are people growing and maturing in Christ. Not people that just say they go to church. Not people that say they're disciples, but people who really are disciples. And real disciples are are marked by transformation. They grow. They mature. They submit to authority. They have spiritual parents in their life. They're being shaped and guided according to the will and ways of God. Their agenda is not their will, but God's will. Their ways are not their ways, but God's ways. They're learning God's ways. 
These are the people that are building biblically. They're living out wisdom that will work in the workplace. That's what will, that will lead to true success. That will lead to real fruit. That will lead to lasting fruit. Now, just one other quick point here. You might be saying to yourself, I have no clue how to do this. And that's a very good place to be. Because most of us are spiritually like children. When my youngest grandson was born 14 months ago, and I held him in my arms when he was one hour old, and I looked at him and realized, well, he's here, he's alive, but he knows nothing. He cannot survive. He has to be parented. If he's not parented, he will die. Now, that's true spiritually. If you're not spiritually parented, you will die. You will not live. It will not go well. And so my suggestion, my recommendation to you, as you think about what this lesson is saying here, is I don't want to live in the default state of ignorance and rebellion against God. I want to truly live in the state of being transformed into the image of Christ. And I need parents, spiritual parents, to care for me and guide me and direct me and feed me and teach me the will, how to discern the will and ways of God. That's what you need. If you don't have that relationship in your life, may that be your takeaway today. May the Lord give you the grace to find that relationship and to get under that authority and let that spiritual parent, that mother and that father, help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ so you can do what God put you here to do according to his will and his ways. Well, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the seriousness that with which you approach your universe. We thank you for the patterns that are here to show us what's in us. And Father, give us the grace to embrace this truth and may it transform us and bring alignment in our hearts with your heart. May it bring alignment of our will with your will. May it bring alignment of our ways with your ways. So Father, give us the grace to learn true wisdom True wisdom that will enable us to win at work. Because we know winning is all about obeying you. So give us grace to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen.